It is uh, definitely a privilege to be with you here this morning. Uh, I always think it's uh, pretty amazing when you come out, say, on a Saturday when you could be doing a lot of other stuff, and uh, to, to listen to me, and to, but more importantly, to listen to what the Bible has to say. Uh, so I also want to thank you for the warm hospitality that you've extended. I have grown to fall in love with tumbleweed. Uh, you know, uh, anything that has bacon in it usually, you know, ups uh, the things, uh, the, the quality. So I'm really excited about discovering that. I, in fact, I told my wife this morning on the phone, you have to learn how to make this. Uh, but that being said, let's not just talk about bacon, even though I think bacon would be better than, uh, than suckers, you know. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, but uh, what we want to talk about today is uh, Christ, our righteousness. And I think it was certainly a fitting hymn uh, uh, that we uh, sang just moments ago, talking about uh, wrapping our souls in the garment of Christ's righteousness. But what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to expand upon that so that we understand it and that we uh, are able to root it uh, very organically in what the Bible has to say about this all-important topic uh, that ultimately uh, consists and forms the foundation uh, for our salvation. Uh, It was in the 16th century, uh, in the 1500s, where the uh, 16th century reformer Martin Luther uh, really kind of, in a sense, rediscovered the gospel. There had been people throughout church history that had never lost track of the gospel, but the church as a whole had become convinced uh, that the way that a person was saved uh, was by uh, not only the work of Christ, by his suffering, by uh, the crucifixion, and by believing in him, but also by contributing to their salvation through their own good works. Uh, So much so that when Luther heard about God, and he basically said, uh, do I love God? No, I hate him. Uh, and even said that he hated him because he did not see in God a merciful God, but rather an exacting God, a God who expected him to be righteous and expected him to be holy. And when he recognized the height, the height of God's expectations and the perfection that he saw that the law required, he basically said, how on earth could I possibly attain that level of holiness? How can I possibly attain that level of righteousness, that level of obedience that the law requires, which is essentially what righteousness is, the idea that you conform to the demands of the law? How could I do that? And so Luther studies the scriptures, and in particular the book of Romans, and he comes to the earth-shattering revelation uh, that it is not that he himself has to provide this righteousness, but this is the righteousness, this is the obedience that comes to us as a gift from God. And he says it's as if the gates of heaven itself were opened when he realized that this righteousness came from God. And the way that he came to describe this righteousness is he said that it was an alien righteousness by which we were saved. Now, especially for you kids, you hear alien and maybe you think of uh, outer space, Uh, but that's not what Luther had in mind. By alien, he has in mind the idea that it's something outside of ourselves, something outside of ourselves, that it comes outside of us. It comes from God rather than from us. 
And so this is why uh, it is so important for us to understand this. Now, during the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church picked up the works of Luther and other uh, Protestant theologians, and they recognized that uh, we have to stop this because they're undermining the teaching of the church. And there was this one particular theologian at a meeting that was held that's famously now known as the Council of Trent. And this was the official Roman Catholic response to uh, the teachings of the Protestant Reformation. And in particular, uh, Luther was front and center because he was uh, the, one of the best-known names among the Protestants. And this one theologian stood up and gave a three-hour speech, a three-hour speech from memory. And in this three-hour speech, as he was articulating uh, the, uh, what they believed was the truth, he engaged the teaching particularly of Luther on this doctrine of imputed righteousness. The idea that when we are saved, when God saves us, it's not that we contribute our good works, but rather God takes the work of Jesus Christ, both in his suffering and in his obedience to the law, and he accredits it to us. He transfers it to us, uh, and that he looks upon us as if we ourselves had done it, but rather, no, it was Jesus who had done it. Or in the words of the hymn that we sang moments ago, it's that God clothes us in the robe of Christ. And so this Roman Catholic theologian recognized that this is what Luther was saying, but he said, no, I reject that. I reject that. And he rejected it because he said, and when I read this, I was like, yes, this is so important that we recognize that the Roman Catholic Church understood what Luther was saying. And that he said, I reject this because if it is only the work of Christ, then it leaves no place for our good works. And when I read that, I said, yes, that's it, right on the money. You understand. And sadly, a huge portion of the population in Europe followed the Roman Catholic Church in rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, rejecting the teaching of the scriptures. And so what we want to do is we do not want to rest, as important as church tradition is, we want to say, hey, Luther was a brilliant theologian, and he understood the scriptures. But at the same time, we don't want to rest simply in the teaching of tradition, as important as that is. But rather, we want to dig into the scriptures so that we can understand what the Bible itself has to say about these things. So that as Paul, for example, taught the Bereans in the book of Acts, the Bereans went home and they searched the scriptures to ensure that the things that Paul was teaching were, in fact, harmonious with the teaching of the Bible. Because often it's the case that I think that we say, well, um, I know that Jesus died to save me. And I know that it's his suffering on the cross that saves me from my sins. So that's certainly an important teaching. But oftentimes when I say, well, where would you go to the Bible to find that? 
people might not necessarily be able to pinpoint that precisely, except for maybe generally in the Gospels, and that's certainly a good start. Uh, you know, another question that often comes up is we say, well, why did Jesus suffer and die? And our response is, is well, to save me from my sins. And I would say, yes, that is a, a good and true answer. But there's another question that also should come up, and I wonder if we're able to answer that one as quickly and as accurately as the first question is, is why did Jesus live? That is an equally important question. Because it could have been that Jesus could have parachuted into the creation as a fully grown human being and walked up to the cross, crucified, and then was resurrected and taken away. But why is it that he lived that whole life? In other words, when we say we rest in the finished work of Christ, it's the life, the death his resurrection and ascension that we hold on to. But why is it that we include the life? Well, in short, and then over the next you know, couple of lectures here, uh, we'll fill this out. Uh, it's his lifelong obedience to every commandment of the law, his perfect obedience. In other words, he fulfills, as we would say, every jot and tittle of the law, for you, so that when God looks upon you, not only does he say, I have forgiven you of your sins, but he also sees that you have perfectly fulfilled every requirement of the law because Jesus has done it on your behalf. You see, because when we look at the Bible, it's so important for us to recognize that innocence Innocence is not enough. It is insufficient for us to appear before the throne of God and simply be innocent of wrongdoing. In other words, sometimes maybe you've heard this, what does justification mean? Justification is just as if I had not sinned. That's partially true. You know, imagine you're standing in a court of law and... Uh, uh, you hear, not guilty, you probably have a great sense of relief. But in God's court of law, that's only half of the story. Because not only do you need that not guilty verdict, but you need that verdict of and perfect fulfillment of the law. You know, it's like I use this illustration, and maybe it's because I live on the left coast, but it's as if I were to get a speeding ticket or I would get, you know, and I would go to court and I would tell the judge, hey, um, I'm innocent of speeding. I'm innocent of speeding. I was, in fact, driving one mile under the speed limit. So I'm innocent. But not only am I innocent, I was driving an electric car. So my carbon footprint was like next to nothing. And in addition to having a very small carbon footprint, I was carpooling. <laughs> and not only was I carpooling, but um, I was reporting other speeders. 
And I even pulled over to give somebody a lift. In other words, I was far from transgressing the law. I was obeying it and going above and beyond what the law requires. So it's not merely that I'm innocent, but that I am positively fulfilling the law. That's what the biblical requirements are before us. And so what I want us to do is I want us to focus on the idea of how is it that we receive the perfect work of Christ, not only in terms of his suffering, the penalty of the violation of the law, but also in terms of his fulfilling the law. How is it that we receive it? And the short answer is, is that we receive it through imputation, that God accredits accredits it to our account. Think of it in terms of an accounting ledger. You know, if your, your account is over here and Christ's account is over here, then God takes Christ's righteousness, his obedience to the law and his suffering, and he transfers it. He accredits it to your account. And that he does so so through faith alone and by grace alone. But in order to do this, we want to lay a foundation. And the first thing that we want to do is we're going to look at here momentarily uh, a couple of passages in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament really lays the foundation for this concept of the imputed righteousness or the imputed obedience of Christ. So often when we discuss these things, and especially, say, in the seminary classroom or in, uh, you know, academic books or what have you, the discussion almost invariably focuses upon the writings of Paul. Now, on the one hand, that's a good thing. You know, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, called to be an apostle, uh, writes, as far as in terms of quantity, a huge portion of the New Testament. But we want to ask the question is, where does Paul get his information? Where does he get his information? And we would say, well, certainly he gets it from the Spirit of God. Yes, that's true. But if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, show me your Bible, what would he say? He'd say, well, it's the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament. And in fact, you know, you can look and you can see this probably in your own Bible. Sometimes it's in a center column. Sometimes it's in the little footnotes or off in the sides of the margin where you'll be reading and you'll see a teeny tiny letter up in the, in the corner of the page or what have you or in the center columns. And then you see scripture references. And what those are are those are cross-references. Uh, so that if you see a statement in the Bible and it has a cross-reference to the Old Testament, more, to- more often than not what that's saying is, is that this is a quotation from the Old Testament or this is an allusion or this kind of invokes Old Testament ideas and here's the Old Testament passage. So in other words, the Apostle Paul, uh, the roots of his writing in The New Testament has deep roots that stretch all the way back into the Old Testament. So that, say, for example, in Romans chapter 4, when he's talking about the uh, justification, where does he go? He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, the very opening chapters of the Bible itself. And that's where he's pulling his information. So uh, in the rest of this session, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture in uh, Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, 
and we're going to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 53, uh, the, the song about the suffering servant. And then in the following lecture, we're going to look at imputation in the New Testament. And we're going to look at the baptism of Christ. We're going to look at uh, three passages in Romans, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, and Romans chapter 8. And then we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then in the third lecture, we're going to look more specifically and more closely at Romans chapter 5 so that we can see why Paul brings up these important connections between Adam, Christ, and Israel so that we can see how he lays all of that out and in particular why he talks so much about imputation there in Romans chapter 5. All right, that being said, let's turn over in our Bibles uh, to Leviticus chapter 16, which in many ways we can call was the day of days, the day of days, the day of atonement in ancient Israel. This was perhaps the most important day of the year in Israel's calendar because if that day did not go well, if Israel did not receive the forgiveness of their sins through the sacrifices that were to be conducted on that day, uh, then that means that essentially they would be out of fellowship with God. There would be a, a, a breach in the relationship. And in Leviticus chapter 16, this is connected ultimately with the events that precede it in Leviticus chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu, the two priests, the sons of Aaron, tried to go before the Lord and brought what the Bible calls his unauthorized fire unauthorized fire, and the Lord struck them down. And then in chapters 11 through 15, what God does is he spells out, this is the way that you're supposed to approach me. These are the rules that you're supposed to follow. These are the sacrifices that you're supposed to bring. And don't break the rules, because if you do, take a look at Nadab and Abihu. And so we come here to Leviticus chapter 16, and in verses 1 and 2, you get an introduction. In verses 3 through 5, you get the instructions regarding the animals and the priestly clothing. In, in verses 6 through 10, you get an outline of the ceremonies. And then in verses 11 through 28, uh, you get the description of the ceremonies, where in verses 11 through 19, you get the sprinkling of the blood. Verses 20 through 22, you have the description of the scapegoat. And then verses 23 through 28, you get the cleansing rituals. And then 29 through the end of the chapter, you get uh, the, the, the responsibilities that the people themselves were supposed to carry out. But we want to focus especially upon the scapegoat. That's a term perhaps that you've heard, you know, oh, he, that person was a scapegoat. He was just a victim. Uh, he was just a sacrificial uh, animal, so to speak. Well, in verses 7 through 8, it, the, the goat was supposed to be chosen by lot. In other words, kind of uh, random. And they were brought before, the, it was brought before the high priest. And notice here in verses 21 and 22. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So notice here, 
there were two goats, one to be sacrificed and then this other goat, this live goat, where it describes it in terms of the priest, the high priest Aaron, who had himself gone through incredibly intricate cleansing rituals to make sure that he himself was ceremonially pure, free from any defilement. He would then go on behalf of Israel, take the live goat, place both of his hands upon the head of the goat, and then confess his, the sins of the nation over the head of the goat. Now this is really important. This is really important. Because first of all, what's going on with the, we could say, the laying on of hands? What's, what, what was symbolic? What was significant about this laying on of hands? Well, we can find this type of action in other portions of the Old Testament. Particularly, it was used in terms of the transfer of authority. You've probably seen this maybe in an ordination, uh, you know, an ordination service when they invite the ministers and the elders to come and to lay hands, to lay hands on the person that's being ordained, which behind closed doors and before the church service, I, I refer to it as the dog pile. You know, everybody go on and pile up on the guy. Lay your hands on him. But in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18, for example, so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. And what this is, is this was significant in terms of Joshua. It was transferring the authority from one person to another. So that Joshua, through the laying on of hands, received this authority through the laying on of hands. A symbolic action of the transfer of one thing to another. But in this particular case, notice here what the high priest is doing, is he's taking his hands, he's laying them on the head of the goat, and he is transferring the sins of the nation to the goat. He's transferring the sins of the nation to the goat. Now, how do we know? How do we know that he's transferring Israel's sins? Well, we get this information there in terms of verse 22, and in particular, you could say verse 21 as well, where it says, And he shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions. So notice what's also key here is in terms of the, 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 the confession of sin. So it's not simply just the laying on of hands, as, as important as that is, but it's the laying on of the hands and the additional confession of the sins of the nation. This is important. And again, verse 22, notice, the goat shall bear their iniquities. The goat would then carry the nation's sins. And in particular, uh, you had somebody at the ready who would then take the goat and escort the goat outside of the camp. Symbolic of the fact that God was taking away their sins. Now, you don't have this in the text, but in ancient Jewish tradition, uh, this is extra-biblical. This is something that they added. 
Now, whether or not they should have added it or not, that's another story for another day. But what they wanted to make sure is they wanted to make sure that the goat wouldn't do a U-turn and come back. As if the goat was taking the sins away, you don't want them to boomerang and come back. And it's like, oh no, here comes the goat. And so they would walk the goat to the edge of a cliff and then give it a quick push. No lie. So like, yep, yeah, that, that sin's not coming back. It's gone all the way down there. So they would give the goat a little encouragement and push it off a cliff just to make sure that it wouldn't come back. Why? This goat is carrying the sins. They've been transferred uh, to the goat. And now, when, when we come to, in terms of the understanding of this significance, from the earliest days of the church, and you get this from a letter called the Epistle of Barnabas. It's not a scriptural, uh, you know, passage of scripture. It's not inspired. Uh, but we can say that it's an early church document. One of the first, co- first commentaries, if you will, on the Bible. And so, the earliest Christian interpreters of this passage of Leviticus said, when we look at this passage and we look at the goats, to whom ultimately do these goats point? And they identified that it was Jesus that these goats pointed to. Not just simply the sacrificial goat, not just simply the sacrificial goat, But in addition, the scapegoat, the goat that was to bear the sins. But one of the things that we might want to ask is, is, okay, as I'm looking at this Old Testament imagery, as we're looking at this goat, we see a few things that we can identify. Uh, With the sacrificial goat, we can see suffering the penalty for sin. Because we see that the goat suffers and dies in the place of the nation. So that's what we would call the suffering of Christ. We also see imputation in terms of the transfer, because the goat bears the sin, the goat takes the sin away, as the priest lays his hands on the head of the goat and transfers and confesses the sin of the nation over the goat as the goat carries it away so that we see imputation. But one of the questions we might ask is, is, well, you know, Dr. Fesco, you mentioned at the beginning that it's Christ's perfect law-keeping that we also receive by faith alone. And I would say, yes, we do. And you might say, well, where is that in this particular passage of Leviticus? Because the last time I checked, I I don't know that goats obey the law. I would say that's true. Goats don't obey the law. And in fact, they seem to be somewhat rather ornery creatures from what I'm told. I mean, the closest that I've ever been to a goat is like a petting zoo with my kids. So I can't tell you very much about goats. But what I can tell you is about the biblical text in that, remember... The Israelites had to follow these instructions perfectly. So that where you see the perfect law-keeping of Christ foreshadowed and hinted at 
is in the perfection of the obedience that the high priest and the Levites had to follow in order to see this sacrifice successfully carried out. Because if they failed, if they failed, then that could imperil the sacrifice and the transfer of sin to the goat and thus place the whole nation in a state of unholiness. Because the sin would still be there. And in fact, again, you read ancient Jewish literature, and this is literature that is outside of the scriptures, so it's uninspired, but it nevertheless captures what's going on in the text, and it uh, captures their traditions, is that they wanted to make sure that everything on that day went perfect. They would keep the high priest surround him by high priests, place him on a chair, and then have high priests or priests circling him, reciting scripture in the days uh, leading up to the Day of Atonement to make sure that nothing but scripture would be in his mind. If he fell asleep because he would be there hour upon hour, they would snap their fingers to keep him awake. They would have him walk over cold stones to keep him awake, and he would do so barefoot. And then because they needed to make sure that everything was perfect, they even had a backup wife waiting for him so that if his wife died, they didn't want to imperil the sacrifice. Then they said, get the backup wife, perform the marriage ceremony. Okay, now he's, everything's ready to go. So I don't, I don't have a backup wife. <laughs> but the high priest did because they wanted to ensure that that sacrifice was executed perfectly. So right there, I think you would see is the obedience of Christ foreshadowed. All right, so that's, that's the Day of Atonement. Now let's move forward, and we want to look at um, Isaiah chapter 53. We want to look at Isaiah chapter 53, which is perhaps you know, one of the, the, the most famous passages in the Old Testament, particularly because it is the song of the suffering servant. The Song of the Suffering Servant. And I want us to look specifically at verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. I'd certainly commend to you to read the whole of this chapter uh, at some point later in the day, but let's look at verses 11 and 12 where the prophet says... Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, in terms of the broader context, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying of a time when Israel will be taken into exile. And it is this sacrifice of the suffering servant that will break the back of the the exile and repatriate the people to the land, repatriate the people to the presence of God. And so here, as we look here, 
particularly say of verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In other words, as the New Living Translation renders it, it was the good plan of the Lord to bring this about. So that it's God himself who is interceding on behalf of his people to deal with their sin, the sin that ends up creating this breach in their relationship. And so as we come here to verse 11, we notice, uh, or particularly that it's in verses 11 and 12, that it speaks of the blessings of the covenant. You know, it says, I will divide with him the portion of the many, and he'll divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, this reaches back, say, to the book of Deuteronomy, where God laid out the blessings of the covenant. If you disobey me, I'll visit you with curses. If you obey me, I will visit you with these blessings. You'll have a fruitful harvest. You'll have uh, many offspring. You will conquer your enemies. So that here when he says, uh, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. These are evocative of these Old Testament blessings from the book of Deuteronomy brought about because of obedience. But in this particular case, it's not the obedience of the people that bring about the blessings, but rather it's the obedience of the servant. It's the obedience of the servant that he gives to the servant these blessings and he divides the spoil with the many. But in particular, notice here, Uh, In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. So that he says that in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his suffering, he would see the outcome and would be comforted by the fact that his suffering was efficacious, was effective to bring about the blessings upon the people. You know, sometimes when we suffer, we don't see a point to it. We don't understand why it may be occurring. But if we were to be able to glimpse and to see, oh, this is why. You know, think of the athlete who is, uh, uh, you know, working so hard. And if he's able to see that he can win the championship at the end of the season, then he would say, okay, well, this makes it all worth the while. Well, this is a sense in which the Isaiah, the prophet, is, is showing us that he says the suffering servant, out of his suffering, he sees. And he's satisfied with this knowledge that by his suffering, he's going to bring blessings upon the people. But then it works, it moves from what the suffering servant has done to what he accomplishes. And what does he actually accomplish? Again, there in the latter part of verse uh, verse 11, he will make many to be accounted righteous. There's that word, accounted. Or you could say he will make many to be accredited righteous. So that it is through the suffering of the servant, through his death, that he brings about the status of righteousness for the people. Who's doing the suffering in this passage? Is it the people? Who's doing the suffering? It's the servant. 
It's the servant who's suffering. And through his suffering, he will make many to be accounted righteous. To be righteous means to be in conformity to the law. To have fulfilled the law. And so in terms of accounted, this is the language of imputation. This is the language of imputation. The way that one commentator uh, describes this is he describes it in terms of the song that we sang by 19th century Presbyterian theologian Horatius Bonar when he says, I will wrap my soul in his robe of righteousness. He says that the suffering servant wraps the people of God in his robe of righteousness. He covers them with his righteousness. But notice there too, at verse 11, and he will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Do you recognize that language? Where have you heard that language before? Hint was just a few minutes ago. Closer hint, Leviticus chapter 16. When the goat would bear the sins of the people and carry them away. Except do you see what's happening here? Is that in Leviticus, we get somewhat of a fuzzy picture, if you will. It's the idea that it's this goat that's going to carry away the sin. But the further we move, the closer we get to the incarnation of Christ, the, the picture narrows, it gets clearer, and it becomes more evident that it's not an animal that will bear the sins, but that it is the Messiah who will bear the sins. And in particular here, what Isaiah is saying is that it is Jesus, the Messiah, who will make many to be accounted righteous. And not only make many to be accounted righteous, but he himself will bear their sins. So that it is not a mere animal that carries our sins, but that it is the Son of God who bears our sins. And in fact, commentators, one of whom, who's, you know, when I was reading this commentary, he doesn't carry much of a brief uh, for uh, conservative evangelical theology, but yet he himself acknowledged the fact that, yeah, this is invoking the language of Leviticus 16. So that Leviticus 16 connects up with Isaiah 53. And as we're going to see in the next lecture, one of the chief passages that appears over and over again in the New Testament is Isaiah chapter 53. So as I said at the beginning, the Apostle Paul's doctrinal roots stretch all the way back into the Old Testament. They stretch all the way back to the Old Testament. So that he's not just making stuff up. He's explaining the significance of, of the Old Testament so that he will uh, make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear their sins. But notice here in terms of verse 12, uh, that why is it that God gives him all of these blessings? Therefore, because of this suffering, because of his death, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Notice here this world of opposites. The righteous servant intercedes for the unrighteous. He makes many, the many transgressors, to be accounted as righteous. Yet he himself, the righteous servant, is numbered with the transgressors. In other words, notice there's another kind of imputation going on here. The idea that God accounts Christ's righteousness to us, and yet he numbers Christ, the righteous one, with the transgressors. In other words, he accounts our sin to the suffering servant. In the simplest of terms, what is his becomes ours, and what is ours becomes his. And the Apostle Paul, for example, in other portions of his writings, say, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, speaks of this in terms of the marriage relationship. When the couple gets married, what is his becomes hers, and what is hers becomes his. Maybe we don't think about that too much. I thought about that when I got married because I knew that my books would become my wife's. So I had to think about that. That's why we got a prenup. No. I'm just kidding. There's no prenup. Uh, but I tell my wife, I, I told her when we got married, I said, I will give you the only library card that exists for my library that will allow you to check out books. Not even my kids have a library card to my library. But you've got to think about that. And in this particular case, the marriage of Christ to his bride means that everything that is his, his suffering, his perfect law-keeping, becomes yours. And everything that is yours, your sin, your guilt, your shame, becomes his. And this is what Luther called was the glorious exchange. The glorious exchange. I want to close with uh, one passage from Isaiah chapter 61. And it's a theme that we'll continue to explore. And God willing, we'll see in much greater detail in tomorrow morning's uh, message from Zechariah chapter 3. But notice how the prophet rejoices in the salvation that he has received. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So that ultimately, imputation is about receiving that perfect robe of righteousness, the robe of Christ, so that when God looks upon you and you stand before him in his presence at the final day, he will not see your sin or your unworthiness. He will only see the perfection of Christ's Holiness and righteousness. His perfect fulfillment of the law. His perfect suffering. 
imputed to you by faith alone, by the grace of God alone. So think about that. Meditate upon the beauty and the joy that that should stir in your heart. And we'll look at uh, the next portion when we look at the, um, the New Testament, what that has to say.